Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Well, I hope you've been able to catch uh, our first few episodes of season two. We have definitely had experts from around the world on and uh, have enjoyed just hearing their conversations, but also the input that we're getting from you all on uh, Facebook and on our webpage has been really exciting for Phil and I. And so we're going to kind of jump right into our mailbag. So Phil, what is um, the question that we have today? Yeah, today's question is is uh, kind of jumping off some of the other conversations we've had this season and actually really throughout the, the course of this show. Um, but before I get into the mailbag, I want to just make sure uh, we, we mention and hope to encourage everyone to be praying about uh, Haiti and Jamaica and Cuba and and the kind of eastern seaboard of the U.S. Is with the, in the wake of Hurricane Matthew and all of the destruction that it has it has caused and just the people that are in need of of relief and of care and of just uh, real peace that can only come from God. And I just uh, pray uh, and invite you to pray with me on um, on really how, how that can be remedied and how that can be uh, the proper relief and, and rehabilitation and development of these countries that are in such need already. And so I just wanted to make sure that we, we have that at the forefront. And really it, it goes to, you know, some of the questions that we've had and some of the conversations we've had on the show is how can we be wise in how we give, how can we be wise in how we give our time and our resources, our thoughts, our, you know, and all of the, the different issues that we're talking about as far as short-term trips and things. A lot of them go into, you know, how can we respond properly and diligently and in a way that uh, is effective. And so just want to put that out there and, and, and make sure all the people out there in those, in those places that have been affected know that we're with you in our thoughts and prayers. So with that, uh, we have today a, um, uh, mailbag question from Heather Graham in Washington. And, uh, Heather, Heather has said, and she, uh, as she says, it's to piggyback off the question that was sent in from Ginja, um, in a, in a previous episode. And she said, like you mentioned, the term orphan means many things to many people. Would you say for those who classify themselves as being a part of the orphan movement, there is a responsibility on our parts to clarify the definitions better, especially in regards to funding and sponsorship and adoptions? As some of us have come across, when you bring up orphan in different groups of people, churches, schools, etc., people's minds immediately go to double orphan, institutionalization because of a loss of family. Statistically, we know that most likely that's most likely not the case, even when dealing with international adoption. Do you think it's time we start developing using better ter- terminology and definitions, especially for those who are wanting to get involved, donating, volunteering, etc.? I guess as you read this, you realize I do donate, I assume is what she's talking about, and that it's important to me for the ways we treat our vulnerable kids and also their families, whatever their situation may be. You guys have thoughts, and if you agree, how are others moving this forward? I'm becoming more and more jaded and disappointed by organizations who use the term orphans to raise funding volunteers, funding and volunteers, knowing full well their donors are picturing one thing, yet their programs are working in a contrary child population. These kids deserve more, even if that means an overhaul of what we call our orphan care descriptors. I feel like we need to be more specific in our language and was just wondering if that's the case for anyone else. Love the podcast. Keep up the awesome work. You guys are getting great perspectives all across the board. 
Thanks for the question, Heather. Thanks for the encouragement. Kelly, what do you think about that? I definitely come at this from my, um, I guess, work that I've done in orphan care, but also as an adoptive mom. And um, I know that when we received our referral for our son, um, we received it uh, with um, some video. And in that video was his Africa mom and uh, and him. And it was when she brought him to the orphanage. And so um, he is an orphan or at this case, he is fatherless and was becoming motherless because of poverty. And so I think what's hard for me in all of this is the end result is the same, whether or not there is a living parent or or not. And so at, at the end of the day, he was being abandoned. And so um, whether that's through death, whether that's through poverty, the end result is the same. I do, on the other hand, though, believe that we ha- that it's our responsibility to define the terms correctly. I think it is it is our responsibility to begin to move towards a more accurate descriptor. Because I know when we got that video, it was like a punch in the stomach to my husband and I. Um, like we felt like we. You know, does she really know what she's doing? Does she understand the implications? Does she, can we help her? Like that was our initial response of like, there was a part of it of moving forward that we really had to reassess. And so um, in, in that in that regard, um, I do believe that that is something that we have to be very aware of. What about you, Phil? Yeah, I think that you raised a lot of issues and Heather raised a lot of issues. And this this we could talk about this for several podcasts, just, you know, these issues that we've we've discussed. And I can tell you, Heather, um, and those of you out there that are struggling with these issues, we are working on this by we. I mean, the orphan care movement, the the some of the leaders. Um, in fact, I've been working with the Christian Alliance for Orphans over the last few months on trying to figure out how we together can better uh, clarify what these terms mean and how we can discuss these things. Because when you get into a room and you're using a term orphan or orphanage or residential care or family-based care or you name the term that really has different meanings to different people, it obviously causes an issue with how we can have conversations with each other. Because when you have someone speaking and they're talking about something, there's 30 different interpretations in the room. And and then when you go out of that room and you have other conversations, you say, oh yeah, this, this, and this. And somebody else says, wait a sec, I didn't hear that. What are you talking about? I, I think that I totally disagree with the way you interpreted that. And, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the terms aren't defined well. So from a, the, the context of a context of best practices and excellence and kind of a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show, how can we do this better? We need to ensure that we're talking about the same thing and we're not talking past each other with different vocabularies. And I do think from the standpoint of, you know, volunteers and donors and people out there who want to be ministry partners, that really is the responsibility of the people on one-on-one conversations for the donor to do their due diligence and to understand who they're giving to, to understand what they're giving to, to understand the organizations that they're a part of. I think there is a responsibility on the donor, but there's also a responsibility on the different ministries, on the ministry that I'm a part of and that I that I run. I, I need to make sure that when I'm talking with the people who are involved with Providence, that they understand what we're talking about and who the people, I get questions all the time. How many orphans are you caring for? And I say, well, it depends how you're going to define the term orphan. 
if you're going to define it as UNICEF has, we've, you know, there are hundreds of kids who were impacting in their lives. And, and then if you want to go to all the people around the world, thousands in the context of the different work that we're doing as far as research and so on. But if you're talking about double orphans who don't have a family to care for them and don't have extended family and they are really aren't in a home, aren't in a family, well, then there's probably nine in family homes that are directly being cared for by the ministry. So it could mean a lot of different things, not just on how you define orphan, because you could define orphan extremely well in a way that everyone totally understands and you could still misuse and misrepresent. And so that is, there's, there's several issues there. One is the definitions and the clarity on the definitions. The other is the integrity of the organizations as their marketing, because it's really easy to use shorthand. And that shorthand could be misleading. We live in an age of sound bites. We live in an age of marketing and social media and tweets and 140 characters. And whatever it is, we're trying to get our message down to the shortest attention span out there, which is extremely short. And with that often comes an attempt to use these terms to, you know, to encompass everything that, you know, to get into 140 characters, you got to bring things down. Um, you know, we don't even write out Y-O-U anymore. We just use the letter U. We use the ampersand instead of and. Why? Because we got to fit it into the person's mind. And so I think that we need to be very careful on how we define the terms. And so, yes, Heather, I do think we need to be more careful and we need to be better in coming up with definitions and defining them well, but we also need to use them in a way that isn't misleading. And I think all of those things come down to an integrity and in a, a clear communication. So, Interestingly, our thoughts from the field this today um, address this as well. It really, we were able to have some, to hear some of these uh, different uh, perceptions, different feeling or different uh, definitions of orphans um, at the CAFO summit this year. I was able to ask people what they think of when they hear the word orphan. So I encourage you to stick around after the interview that we have today, which is a great one that I uh, want to hear from a little bit from you, Kelly. You were able to interview Mandy Howard and a brilliant woman who's doing some incredible work. So can you share us a little bit about what that, uh, what we're going to hear from her and then uh, get us into the interview? So yeah, I was able to sit down with uh, Mandy Howard. She's an associate uh, professor at Samford University, but she's also uh, spent a great deal of time with Karen Purvis as her assistant for many, many years um, at TCU. And again, for those of us in the the field of orphan care and vulnerable children, we have more than likely been influenced by Karen Purvis and her work. And so Mandy had a a great deal of influence in in the realm of uh, trauma-based uh, relational interve- interventions. And so just extremely excited for my time that I had um, with her. So with that, let's get to the interview. Hi, Mandy. How are you today? I'm doing well, Kelly. How about yourself? Doing really, really good. I'm so excited that you are able to join us this week. I think you are going to have such great um, information and just insight to share with our listeners. So why don't you tell just a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got involved with uh, the orphan care crisis? Sure, sure. Um, So I actually, I was called to orphan ministry when I was 12. Um, 
my my best friend. Uh, I met her when I was in sixth grade. Uh, we became friends, super fast friends, very quickly. Uh, and a few weeks into our friendship, I, I tried to get her to spend the night at my house. And she's like, well, it's a little complex. Um, and it turned out that she was in foster care. Um, so I kind of walked through that journey of foster care with her through the years. So as she, um, her mother stopped showing up to visitation and then uh, eventually lost custody and then the process of each of her siblings becoming adopted over time. And then later on when we were, when we were older, she was adopted as well. And kind of just the complexities that go around with, uh, you know, being a child that's coming from the foster care system and, uh, just really grew a heart for that from seeing the kind of her story and the things that she went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, so I decided that I wanted to go into human service and, and really serve children that, that, that had this, this need. Um, and I started working at a teen center for juvenile delinquents. Um, and most of our children were in foster care during the time. And, you know, we would make this great progress and do these wonderful things. But, uh, I found that the interventions that we were doing didn't always have long lasting effects. Mm -hmm. So they were compliant, but we weren't connected. They weren't learning about relationship and what it means to be in relationship. Uh, So that brought me to the work of Dr. David Cross and Dr. Karen Purvis. Mm -hmm. uh, And I decided to go back and get my doctorate degree uh, and went to their lab in 2004 and was there for ages with them first as a doctoral student and uh, then as the assistant director of the Institute of Child Development. Mm. So tell us a little bit about um, your work with Dr. Karen Purvis and some of the highlights of working with her. Sure. Um, so when I started uh, working with Dr. Purvis and Dr. Cross at the uh, Texas Christian University Institute of Child Development, uh, the institute actually didn't exist. <laughs> it was wow. uh, me and Karen and David, and then there was one other doctoral student. And um you know, I was just really invested in this work and developing intervention models to help our families that had so much need. Um, and so when I first started, we were just doing very small scale uh, therapeutic summer camps, working with children and their families. Um, and then over time, uh, we recognized that we were doing great work with our children and with our parents, uh, but there was this need within the professional community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of trauma-informed education back then, mm-hmm. and our professionals just didn't quite know what to do with our kids. So we started training professionals, uh, and that grew and grew and grew. Uh, by this time, the Institute actually existed, <laughs> which was mm-hmm. nice. Um, and then... Um, over time, we recognized that our professionals uh, were doing very well with the training, but our communities and our policies and our procedures within the system needed some trauma-informed lenses as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went from training, you know, working with kids one-on-one at a just plain old regular uh, therapeutic day camp to training uh, communities and counties and judges and lawyers and um, trying to really open the minds and the hearts of folks that are working with children that have a history of trauma so they can understand how col- uh, how trauma is coloring their behavior mm-hmm. and coloring their view of the world. Mm. Yeah, we I know we probably anyone who is listening to this has been affected um, by the work that you all have done on research and development of interventions for kids who come from hard places. So can you tell us just a little bit about how trauma affects the brain, which obviously leads into uh, behaviors and understanding and, and learning and all of those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. So first, let me just say this. When I, when I discuss trauma and 
um, when the Institute of Child Development discusses trauma, we define it very broadly. Um, you know, most people immediately they think about you know abuse and neglect, but really trauma is much broader than that. Um, so I'm talking about things like having a difficult pregnancy or a stressful pregnancy, um, a difficult birth, you know, maybe loss of oxygen during those first few minutes of life, um, early hospitalization. So uh, being in the, the NICU unit or having to have a life-saving procedure during those early times. And then obviously abuse and neglect um, and any other big traumas that children might experience. So, um, you know, loss of a loved one, um, maybe going through the trauma of war, or being in a very poverty-ridden uh, country. Um, so when I talk about trauma, I'm defining it very broadly. Mm-hmm. But what we know about brain development is that it occurs in a, in a hierarchical fashion, right? So when you're in utero, um, the primitive things happen first. So your brain stem forms, which is part of heart regulation, body temperature, um, you know, your your midbrain form, so uh, arousal, sleep states, you know, appetite, satiation. And then after the child is born, those more higher functioning parts of the brain are what really are forming during that period of time. So the limbic system, uh, which is in charge of emotion and emotion regulation. And then the very last thing to form is actually the cerebral cortex, which is in, in charge of things like abstract thought, Uh, cause and effect thinking, decision making. So what we know is that at any point in time, if you experience trauma, again, all the way from in utero, so a stressful pregnancy, drug or alcohol exposure, all the way up uh, to after the child is born, it's going to affect a different part in a different area of the brain. Um, Which, you know, one one of the great joys in this work is knowing that the brain is plastic, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're hardwired to connect to other individuals. So even though we have this basic brain structure, our brain is very open to experience, um, you know, both for good, mm-hmm. uh, but also for the negative things. So some of the big stuff that we see um, is, for example, there are three types of stress that you can experience and everybody can, can sympathize with this. So you have positive stress because even good things in, in life are stressful. I always like to joke the most stressful time in my life was planning my wedding, which mm-hmm. was a great event, but it's really yes. stressful. Um, but in general, we're good at adjusting to that. So for a child that might look like entering a new childcare facility, it's still a little stressful. There's a lot of change, but it's good stress. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have tolerable stress, which these can potentially have an effect on the developing brain. Uh, so maybe it's a death of a loved one. Um, maybe it's parents going through a divorce, Mm -hmm. but usually this is something that's discreet. It's not good. It can affect the brain, but there's, uh, there's enough cushion and there's, you know, enough of a buffer that it doesn't have a long-term effect. Toxic stress is the one that we're most concerned about. And so this is strong, frequent and prolonged activation of the stress system. Mm -hmm. And it can have some pretty profound effects on the way the brain develops, not just in terms of the actual development of structures, but also how our brain wires itself together based Mm -hmm. on that experience. Um, So some of the things that we see for our kiddos uh, that are experiencing this, this 
chronic and toxic stress are things like the hippocampus, mm. uh, which is involved in memory and in learning. And over time, if the hippocampus has a lot of stress, it's actually toxic to the brain, mm. uh, which means that the body can't regulate those stress hormones. Mm. Um, another big one, and this is the one we often talk about in our work, is within the limbic system, there's this teeny tiny structure that looks like an almond. It's called the amygdala. Uh, and it is, in essence, responsible for your emotional activation. Um, so for our kids, you know, in, in a typically developing environment, you have some sort of threat into the environment and you react in some way that's adaptive, mm-hmm. but then you can regulate yourself back down. What we know is for our children that have this history of chronic and toxic stress, their amygdala is overreactive. Mm. So because they're having this jolt of stress, they don't know how to calm themselves back down and it reacts more than uh, what is adaptive. Um, So as a result, they don't have access to those higher level things. So if you're functioning on your, your lower brain and on your limbic system, you don't have access to things like cognition and understanding consequences because you're so worried about fight, flight, or freeze. You're so worried about survival Mm. that you just can't think those processes through. So the behaviors that we're seeing, you know, that, you know, manipulation, triangulation, aggression, violence, those behaviors all have a function, but those children are functioning on that limbic system amygdala level. They don't have access to the decision-making parts of their brain. Mm. And that's one of the major ways that trauma affects behavior and the brain in general. Mm. Thank you so much. I think that's such a great uh, description and really easy to kind of understand. And I love how you said the brain is plastic and how um, just because this is the early um, maybe experience of some children, it doesn't necessarily mean that these are long term things that uh, we have no way of of helping them um just be able to access more cognition and learning and all of those things. So tell us a little bit about just the trust-based relational interventions that you that you all have developed and how just some examples of how those those work. Sure. So really the goal of trust-based relational intervention or TBRI is helping caregivers recognize the need of a child. And so we see lots of behaviors and many times I like to think of that as the smoke. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, we need to deal with those behaviors, but behind every behavior, there's a need. So what is the need? What does this child need in this moment? Mm-hmm. The behaviors are just their way of telling us what they need. They just don't have good words mm-hmm. <laughs> yet. So um, TBR is focused on helping caregivers recognize the need below the behaviors and then empowering them to be able to meet that need. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, going back to this idea, idea of how the brain changes as a result of trauma, most of the time our children are operating on the amygdala, as Karen was always fond of saving, mm-hmm. saying. Um, and when you don't feel safe in your environment, that's a very adaptive uh, way to operate. And many of our kids coming from those histories of, you know, an abuse, neglect, uh, institutional care, that was very adaptive. They had to lie. They had to manipulate in order to get their needs met. Mm. But now that they've come home or now that they're in a safe environment, um, the goal of TBRI is to teach them strategies to feel safe in their environment, to calm down that amygdala and use their words to get those needs met. Mm. Uh, So that's really one of the big focuses of TBRI is getting to the need below the behavior. 
Um, it has three major principles. So the kind of the heart and soul of it is connecting with the child. Uh, you know, so finding ways to facilitate that attachment relationship, but also being mindful of what you bring because we all have buttons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what are our buttons and why do the things in our past and our history or the behavior that we're, we're seeing, why do those bother us so badly and recognizing what our own triggers are? Um, empowering. So both in terms of uh, simple things. I, I always like to talk about the little wins because small things can have big impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like water. So uh, for example, we know that you'll have a 30% decrease in cognition if you're thirsty mm-hmm. and you don't feel thirsty until you're about one to 3% dehydrated. So simple little things like having availability of water to a child can increase cognition, it can increase self-regulation, it empowers their body so they're more successful. Mm. Um, also, you know, recognizing that our children sometimes have different sensory needs uh, and helping them to succeed in their environment. Mm. Um, and then correcting. So um, our goal within the context of, because normally when families come to me, you know, like I said, at the heart of what we do is connecting and they're always like, well, what about correcting? That's where they want to start. Mm-hmm. And it's an important thing. And I don't, I don't want to minimize that. Um, but in order to be able to correct, you have to be well connected to the children in your care. Mm-hmm. So every time you're going through and you have a behavioral episode, asking yourself, what is my goal? What do I want them to learn from this interaction? And if they're not learning something, how can I help them to be more successful um, and learn from this interaction? What is my goal? Um, We also try to work a lot on being proactive. So figuring out what the patterns are, Mm. Uh, you know, when, when do the wheels come off and how can we structure the environment in a way to help our child be more successful and what strategies can we teach them so uh, they feel more empowered in that moment. Um, one of one of the big ones that we always run into is transition, and every parent, regardless mm-hmm. of uh, their child, um, has run into this. So pick up at the end of the school day. So that transition from the end of the school day into being at home and doing homework and and all of those things. So you know, thinking about that. How can you help a child in that moment? So some of the things that we know, uh, taking a couple moments at the end of the day, even if it's in the car, um, on the on the drive home, to turn off the radio and say, tell me about your day. Mm. Right? And just connecting with their spirit and helping them to, to feel heard in that moment. Um, empowering their body. They're usually tired, thirsty, hungry. Mm-hmm. When they get home from the day, they've sat still for the last seven hours. Um, so, you know, before we try to dive into doing things like homework, give them a snack, give them a drink. Um, give them some choices. So would you like to go uh, run around and, and play basketball for five minutes and then do your homework? Or do you want to do your homework and then go play basketball? Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of empowering their bodies in that respect. And then in terms of correcting, helping them to have some proactive strategies in place. Uh, so if they know they get dysregulated during homework time, what are some things in place that you can have for them? Have a calming plan available. And so that might mean uh, when they start to feel their body getting revved up, right? Their, their mm-hmm. engine, we like to say their engine's going on red. Um, have things in place during a time that you've set up Um, you know, when you guys are in a good place. So what are some things that help you calm? Well, this type of music, um, maybe sitting in a certain spot of the house, you know, having a snack, having some water and helping them to regulate their own emotion during that time. So when they start to feel themselves going towards that meltdown, being able to say, what do you need to regulate Mm. and teaching them how to regulate their own emotion? 
Um, one of the things that we know is regulation is taught. So in, in order wow. to do that, it needs to be mentored by a intentional, caring, loving adult. Um, and until someone teaches that child how to regulate and walks them through that process, they're not going to learn how to do it on their own. Mm. That's so good. I think about how so many families, I'm sure when they are, um, when they, when they enter into adoption or foster care, don't always really understand maybe what their own triggers are. And so, um, I think having a plan even before, uh, you go into some of these situations with kids is so vital. And just as you're talking, I'm having all these things kind of flare up of like, Oh, I remember this. And I remember that with our own son, um, and things that we still deal with. So with that, what's just a story that you can share of how TBRI, um, just positively affected a child and a family? Sure. So I, I get really excited talking about this. We, we know all of our families very, very well. Um, they all have my cell phone number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like to tease. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking about was we had a little boy that came to camp. He had been um, kind of the context for it is uh, the family was fostering to adopt mm-hmm. um, and they were uh, had been fostering this this little one that was about two years old. Um, and, you know, the everything was going through. And then, you know, it turned out this little one had a sibling set. And so they decided that they were going to adopt the whole sibling set, which is such a blessing. Um, and so this little boy came to our therapeutic summer camp, um, and his behavior was probably a little bit outside of the range that we should normally accept. Mm -hmm. Uh, but he had, you know, he was such a sweet spirit and we, we really wanted to work with this family. And so, um, he went through the context of camp and he had a lot of, um, aggression, um, and violence issues. Um, so we went through the context of camp and then we started working one-on-one with his family. Um, and so when we were doing the, the in-home training with his family, um, so he had every year within the context of foster care had done an IQ test, Mm -hmm. um, and had scored within a point of the same IQ every single year, uh, within, a month of being in the home program, his IQ jumped 30 points. Wow. Um, and I say all of that to say this, our children don't get smarter in the context of a month. What happened and what the joy of TBRI is, is you're creating this environment where the child feels safe. And as a result, that amygdala calms down and they get access to all of that thought process and all of that high level thinking that they didn't have access to before because they were operating on fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. Um, The same little boy, uh, his foster dad had been trying to teach him to ride a bike for well over a year. And he just, you know, he couldn't coordinate his body in that way. Uh, Within the first three days of our our home program, our home intervention, he was able to ride a bike by himself. And this had been something that they, they had been working on and he was so motivated to do. But now that they calmed down the stress system, he felt connected with that family. They saw the need below his behavior that amygdala calmed down and he had access to all of this higher level thinking. Mm, So those are just a couple of the stories that come to mind. That's wonderful. When you, I know just from talking to you that you are an educator um, at heart and you are currently on staff at Sanford University. And Mm -hmm. what are some signs in trauma that play out in the school setting? And what do you think are some interventions that are helpful in addressing the educational needs of kids from hard places? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the, the big things to keep in mind within the school system, and I, I teachers have such 
um, teachers and administrators have such a challenging job because they're definitely outnumbered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're trying to keep track of all of these things. Um, but thinking about there, there was a fabulous research done a few years ago, a research study done a few years ago uh, that looked at the teacher's perception of behavior. And so you can view acting out behavior in one of two ways. You can view it as this child being willfully disobedient, mm-hmm. right? And they're just doing it to make me mad and they know better. I've told them a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Or you can look at that behavior and view it as a survival strategy. Mm. It doesn't make the behavior okay, but you understand the function of that behavior. And what we found in the educational system is if our teachers can change their perception of, uh, you know, things like kids bouncing around in the lunch line and jostling and other children as this is that, that child getting their sensory needs met. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to have their body in space, and so they crash and bump into other kids to figure out where they are. Again, they can't crash and bump into other kids, but if the the Mm -hmm. teacher can see that as, uh, this is their survival strategy, this is how they've gotten to my door because they they had these adaptive strategies um, and have that compassion, then we can work on, okay, I understand why you're doing that. Let's work on getting you better behaviors and better skills and better strategies to get your needs met. Uh, so that's one of the big things in the system is helping teachers to reframe those behaviors as as opposed to just being willfully disobedient to this is a survival strategy. It's not the best strategy. It's mm-hmm. not optimal. But now we understand the function below that and we can try to give them better strategies in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing that, uh, and th- this is just one of the, the challenges in the, in the educational system, is many times, um, you know, 90% of our attention is uh, dedicated to the acting out types of behaviors because, mm-hmm. you know, it's easier to see the child that's screaming, hitting, punching, or, you know, even just bouncing around the room. Uh, many times teachers will overlook the child that's internalizing. So mm-hmm. the child that's, uh, it gets loud and they withdraw and they go sit quietly and read their book. Um, so I think one of the, the things to help teachers or to, to think about for teachers is to to not just see those acting out and externalizing behaviors, but also to think about those internalizing behaviors. So when they withdraw um, and won't play with the other children, what behavior, what, what is the need below that behavior? What do they need in this moment to help them be more successful in my room? Because many times that just gets overlooked. Hmm. I know for us, we've entered into uh, just the school system with our our son who is adopted. And I know I struggle with how much to share with the teacher beforehand um, as far as his story or past behaviors or just some things like that. What do you, what would be your recommendation for adoptive parents or foster parents of just how to engage in that conversation with the teacher? Yeah. So, you know, we one of the, the, the things that I'm a huge proponent of and, and we found very successful in our work is you always try to bring people alongside. So going into that teacher and saying, you know, I want to support you the best that I can this year. What do you need from me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of opening that up for them. Uh, another thing that we try to do is if they, they start having some difficulty or, uh, you know, there are certain time periods that the child is challenged to say things like, well, this is what works for us at home. Mm-hmm. Um, can I can I help you in any way to get this need met? Or can I help you in this strategy? Um, the other side 
of it too is because you know children uh, the routines are different within the school system right it's not like home uh, so working with that teacher and talking to that teacher and saying things like are there any particular times or areas that are challenging how do you think I could practice that at home so he's more successful in the school system? And that, and that does a few things. In one respect, it's, it's being proactive with the child. It's helping them to learn and to practice doing it the right way so they have some you know, motor memory doing it the right way and being successful and being praised within a safe environment. Uh, but it also really sends the message to the educational system uh, and to the teacher is, I am here with you. I am your advocate. I'm going to try to do everything in my power to help us all be successful in this. Because um, many times teachers just like us are, you know, they feel like they have to be a little bit on the defensive. So bright, breaking past that barrier and saying, I'm going to support you in any way that I can. Mm, that's wonderful. I know I will definitely uh, add that to my list when, when we start school back. Um, you know, I think about attachment. You talked a little bit about, you know, just connecting and, you know, attachment such a hot topic in parenting just across the board, not not even just with kids who come from hard places. But we also know that the attachment occurs a little bit differently with kids who maybe you have brought into your home in a foster or adoptive situation. What are some what are some healthy ways to at- help foster attachment with with those kids? Yeah. So some of the big things that we try to do, um, things like simple things like eye contact, finding fun, playful ways to encourage eye contact, um, healthy touch. And, um, you know, that can be as simple for, you know, a little one uh, for infants in particular. We'll do infant massage just to get them used to that healthy, natural touch that you have as a part of a relationship. Uh, With teenagers and adolescents, um, I'm a huge fan of the manicure pedicure. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, finding ways to many times our children, especially if they're coming from institutional care, um, touch is not permitted to keep them safe within those environments. And, and, um, you know, that's its own set of complexities. But Mm -hmm. touch is a natural, normal part of human interaction. So teaching them what is safe, healthy touch and finding ways to incorporate that uh, into your day to day life. Um, One of the the biggest things, not only for attachment, but just for any relationship, even in correcting, is being playful. Mm. Um, Play is the language of children. Uh, regardless of their age, <laughs> play is the language of children. So if you can correct a child with, you know, something as simple as like, whoa, were you asking or telling as mm-hmm. opposed to going into a sermon or, or whatnot, mm-hmm. um, that facilitates that attachment relationship. Um, you know, you're trying to be playful, you're trying to be fun, and they get this impression, I'm on your side, right? I'm trying to teach you. Um, and if you look at the, the word discipline, it means to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, really getting this impression and really being with them and saying, I'm your advocate. I'm going to help you through this process. Um, another thing that we try to do is behavioral matching. So if our child's, for example, sitting on the ground playing with something, we'll get down on the ground beside them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and try to meet them at their level and uh, facilitate those those easy things within an attachment relationship. Just sending that message of I'm here and I care. Mm-hmm. Um so those are some simple ways to do it. But I, I guess the, the biggest one, so I, I do a lot of work within the attachment area and families get so intimidated mm-hmm. because they think they have to do all of these things all of the time and they have to be 100% on. Um, and I always take comfort. There was a fabulous research study done a few years ago that looked at, so what does it actually take for a child to be securely attached? Um, and what we know is it takes about 30% 
So you don't have to be on all the time. You don't have to be Mary Poppins, as I like to say. Um, if you can be emotionally and psychologically present to your child 30% of the time, more than likely they'll be securely attached. Mm-hmm. That seems much more reasonable. Mm-hmm. But what that means from the standpoint of the parent is when you're there, you're really there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's especially in our, our uh, society today where there's phones and computers and iPads. It, it's hard to really be there and really listen. But if we can do that 30%, more than likely your child will move to security. Mm. What an encouragement. And I know I didn't ask you this before, but I know as um, a parent who who um, was overwhelmed with how to help help our son, what is just a word of encouragement that you can give um, these parents uh, who are in the trenches and are feeling overwhelmed and who are feeling um, just at their, their wits end a little bit, what would just be a word of, of grace and encouragement that you would give to them? Um, so I, I think both for me and for any parent out there, everybody makes mistakes. Um, And many times, particularly when parents learn about attachment, they're like, oh no, I did all of this wrong. And I I like to joke, it's kind of (laughs) the way I communicate. I'm like, don't worry, if you didn't make those mistakes, you would have just made different ones, Mm -hmm. it's all right. Um, But just the word of encouragement that it's never too late to connect, Mm -hmm. that um, you know, regardless of the history that you have with your child, regardless of the age of your child, these are just the products of in the in the, the functions of good relationships. So being emotionally and psych, emotionally and psychologically present, um, you know, behavioral matching, eye contact. It's never too late. So even if your child's thirty three, mm. uh, this is just the stuff of good relationship, and they'll always uh, appreciate that connection. Mm. That's good. So we always end our uh, interviews with the same two questions. And the first one is, what book have you read recently that has influenced you in the area of orphan care or attachment or uh, dealing with uh, working with kids from hard places? Yeah. Um, So actually, this is this is a reread. So I'm kind of talking around the question. Um, so I do a lot of work at the university uh, with students that are interested in in working in orphan care and alleviating poverty. And so I recently, for part of this little group that I'm running with students, uh, reread When Helping Hurts, mm. uh, which, you know, When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate uh, Poverty Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a fabulous book that has some very practical things in there of how to empower those that you're ministering to, you know, both at home and abroad. Um, and, you know, I, I read it the first time. It's it, it was a fabulous book when I read it for the first time. But now going back through with more experience and um, really thinking about what does this mean for the population that I'm working with, uh, it, it's been even more enlightening. And I'm really excited to share that with my students. Mm, that is a great book. Definitely. I know we've had many guests who've recommended that. And so it's that will, yeah, yeah, it'll be linked in our, in our show notes for it's obviously. Um, and then also our last question is who has been a person who's been the most influential, uh, to you in, um, in just how you work with, uh, kids from hard places. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, Dr. Purvis recently, recently passed away and she's by far been the most influential person, not just in terms of my work, but probably in terms of my life. And, um, 
I, I, I'll always have this moment because, you know, when you're learning how to, to work in the field and, and developing compassion for the children and learning what, what it looks like to really be in this field, I, I was really good at being able to be compassionate with our kids, right? I could see the need, I could see the pain and I could meet that need. And I had a much harder time being compassionate for the caregivers. Uh, and it was something that I really struggled with. And so, um, Karen and I, she was working on a court case and I was shadowing her during the court case. And there was a, um, caseworker that was just having a really hard time. Um, you know, and some of the decisions she was making weren't necessarily attachment based and we were just really struggling it through with her. Um, and Karen looked at this caseworker, uh, you know, who was just so upset and had been arguing in the court for literally hours and said, what do you need? What do you need from me? And, you know, that she just burst into tears because the reality is if we want our children to have healthy, meaningful relationships, if we want them to be able to connect, we need to care for our caregivers, right? If we expect them to be able to connect with our children, we need to be able to connect with them and make sure their needs are met as well. Um, and that was really one of those watershed moments for me that it changed the way, not only of I, how I thought about the children, but how I thought about the field overall. Mm. I know we've all been just positively influenced by her and just her presence was so calming and made, made you feel like you could, you could do it. And so um, I'm forever grateful for her work and your work as well um, and how it transformed um, how we parent and the result that we've seen has been truly remarkable. Um, and so we are forever indebted to your work as parents and then also as a professional, um, the stories I can tell of just uh, seeing families begin to shift in how they, they interact with their with their kiddos um, has been amazing. So thank you so, so much. And I know that our listeners are going to love um, hearing from you and connecting with you. And uh, we just appreciate all that you do uh, for for vulnerable kids around the world. So thank you so much. And uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Kelly. It's an honor to be here. I know you guys learned so much from Mandy just listening to her. And I know I did as an adoptive mom and, and was just really encouraged by uh, just my interview with her. Phil, what, what did you learn or what stood out to you? Yeah, with Mandy, it's something that I am always encouraged by her because of just the she's a brilliant mind who has so much to share with with us that are working with vulnerable and and orphaned and just kids from hard places. Um, and one of the things that always encourages me, it's just really the plasticity of the brain and talking about how we can use things like TBRI. We can use things, these different ways that they're equipping educators and strategies to teach these kids from hard places. We can come into these children's lives and be able to, to uh, really develop that trust, really develop uh, attachment, even, even if they've had um, issues in the past, even when there's trauma, we can come in and really start affecting how the brain has is working and how we can develop it into something that these children can fun not only function but flourish in life. And I think that that should be encouraging to all of us to pour ourselves into these kids, to pour ourselves into the children, whether it's through adoption, whether it's through foster care, whether it's just through the different work that's going on around the world, whether it's encouraging caregivers to be able to 
pour their lives into these kids. And I think that's another thing she talked about was caring for the caregivers, which is such an important thing for all of us to remember. That was something that she talked about in the context of what Karen Purvis's impact was on her and how Karen always was saying, well, you need to care for those who are caring for these kids. And I think that's what TBRI does. I know that um, Marco Fuentes, who's the psychologist at La Providencia, just had the privilege to go through the TBRI training in um, – in uh, at TCU out in Texas. And I know that's something that's going to be a game changer for La Providencia because he's going to be able to now come in and use that and train up these children or train up these parents and the, not only the parents in the homes at La Providencia, but the parents in the local community who are caring for their own kids and, and he can use these different, these different skills. So the impact of what, um, Mandy and Dr. Purvis and the other folks at the TCU Institute of Child Development um, have done and are continuing to do is making impact globally um, outside of this little place in, te- in Texas. And so I think that's some, again, should be an encouragement from us all is how we can train the trainers, how we can care for the caregivers, how we can have this multiplicative effect with different things that we're doing in little parts of the world that hopefully can have impact all over the place. And I'm hoping that's what these different um, interviews can help do um, all over the world to those people out there listening. Absolutely. I think that I know for myself and many of other social workers that I have been, um, you know, co-workers with that it has definitely influenced us and just really any child who experiences trauma, any child who has um, anything that um, can be life altering, whether it's adopt, where it's a loss of a parent or even something is uh, what we might think is insignificant as a move, things like that, whatever produces trauma, uh, just the reality that it does affect the brain, but that there are ways to uh, to come back from that. So it was very encouraging. So Phil, I know you mentioned a little bit about our thoughts from the field. So do you want to share a little bit more about that and let our listeners hear? Yeah, like I said earlier in the show, um, at CAFO Summit this year, I was able to just really talk, go around and ask people, when you think of the word orphan, what comes to your mind? What is? What do you think of? What's your definition, effectively, of the word orphan? And and the people were just given little snippets, some five seconds, some thirty seconds, and we're just going to share a few of those with you right now, so you can get an idea. If you aren't involved in this, it probably it might not really make sense to you why we're talking so much about these definitions. But I think these five um, little segments that we have right here will give you an idea of just the different things that come to people's minds when they hear the word orphan, which you might imagine you multiply that by thousands of people coming up with what comes to their mind when they hear the word orphan. And you could see some of the issues we might be having um, when we're trying to have conversations with each other about how to really best care for these children. Because just even these people with these five the way you might care for children in these definitions, in these in these molds, so to speak, um, would be very different. So it's something that I, I it, it was really interesting for me to hear, you know, what people said over the course of a couple days, especially when these people are the ones that are really immersed in the orphan care movement. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so that's what our thoughts for the field are from today. Not one specific person, but uh, just a few different people. And uh, they, they don't even – most. Of them, I don't even think any of them share their name and what they're doing. But I just wanted to really have you hear really what they're thinking when they hear the word orphan. So here you go. When I hear orphan, I think at-risk children. When I hear the word orphan, I think of a small child or even an older child that has had trauma in their life and um, may be without parents or may have parents somewhere um, that can't take care of them for some reason. 
and that are really hurting in their heart and craving love and attention, but they might um, go about finding that love and attention in a way that's not appropriate. So it's a child that needs um, one-on-one attention from a loving, caring adult. When I hear the word orphan, I think of someone who is without a parent or an extended family to care for them, uh, or who's unable to care for them, not just unwilling to care for them, um, who needs a home, someone to care for them, someone to love them, and someone to show them how to uh, live in this world. When I hear the word orphan, I think of all the different definitions of that. A single orphan, one who's lost one parent double orphan who's lost both parents and then there's also something called a poverty orphan that's children who are orphaned because not because they've lost a parent but because of poverty and they're ending up in an orphanage because of that and uh, that's really a hard one to swallow well as promised that was uh, a few different people uh given their thoughts and perceptions on the on the word orphan so again i i'm I'm hoping that we can come up with some different ways to um, just either come up, whether it's different terms or whether it's just a way to understand what we're talking about specifically in different conversations. And so much of that really does come up with having one-on-one conversations with people to clarify what you mean rather than making assumptions about what people mean. And I think that is something that we're hoping to do um, through this show is to highlight some of these things so that when we have conversations with people, we can know that there might be some misunderstanding. And when we have a disagreement with someone, to not just assume that we totally disagree with them, but it may stem from a mis, uh, for us using terms, uh, whether it's orphan or orphanage or some of the other things that we're talking about, we might be using them differently. And so just take that extra few minutes to define terms with whoever you're talking with, particularly when you feel like you're having a huge disagreement. But even if you appear to be having an agreement, because it may be that you're not having an agreement on things either. And so rather than mistaking that, define some terms. And, you know, especially if it's key terms that you might be thinking in, you know, in your mind, they might not be hearing me here or they might be thinking of this word a different way. So I think we just wanted to highlight that today, especially given the kind of repeated questions that have to do with this. I felt that this was a really good way to kind of give you a little taste of of some of the different ways people hear different words. So with that, I, I want to move to the uh, Phil and Kelly recommend uh, part of the show. And today I'm excited to hear, uh, Kelly, something you've been uh, uh, engaging with that you want to uh, share with everyone out there. Yeah, I have um, access to just it was it was basically a conference. So it's just the the audio from a from a conference called Grace Based Parenting with Foster and Adoptive Families. And so the the conference was based on the book Grace Based Parenting by Tim Kimmel, and he's who has been speaking. And so just listening to it and that book is uh, one that I recommend, especially for um really any family. This has nothing to do with adoption. It's just a great resource. But um, it just is very encouraging, I think, as uh, families of foster care kids and adoptive families, as far as, um, man, how do we create a culture of grace? And just how often our kiddos who come from hard places, um, when they are trying to acclimate to a new family, just learning how to receive love, to accept care, to um, understand the protection and the authority of their new parents, that 
often you rub up against some some uh, difficult situations. And so, you know, just this and an, it's just an approach to parenting that allows um, allows us to create a culture of grace and really learn how to connect to the heart of a child in a way that points them and and leads them to connect to the heart of God. And so as as parents, that's obviously our ultimate goal. And one of the things that he he pointed out that really just kind of struck a chord with me of, man, how do we create and maintain an atmosphere of grace? Um, and how do we just how do we embody and create just consistent character in our kids? And so one of the things he said was you have to allow freedoms in your home for a child to be different. And you have to allow the freedom in your home for a child to be vulnerable and a child to be candid with what's on their heart and also to to make mistakes. And so it was just, it's really encouraging and, and just um, just a great reminder. So Grace-Based Parenting is the book. Um, and then this, if you ever can find access to this conference um, online, I highly recommend it. Well, great. Well, that's another great recommendation from you, Kelly. And I, uh, something I haven't, I haven't read yet. And so I'm hoping to add that to the list and, and to be able to engage it as you have. Uh, so everyone out there, thanks again for downloading this show. I hope that you learned as much from it as we did from Mandy in particular. Um, thanks again to Heather for the question. And I encourage you all out there to, to keep engaging with us, uh, on Facebook or via email. Uh, however you want to get in touch with us, we definitely want to engage with you on all these issues because they're, they're really, they're really tough. I mean, these are tough issues that we're, we're hoping to, um, be thinking about with you and hopefully addressing them in ways that will continue to help us to love these children all around the world better and better every day. So until next week, uh, we hope and pray that you will, um, be able to be encouraged and be able to share with others that love that God gives us. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.